Hello and welcome to Cinema Spectator, a show where an expert and a casual movie fan watch movies in the cinematic canon. Today's film is Paths of Glory, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Kirk Douglas and George McCready. My name is Cameron Tuttle and I'm joined with Isaac Ransom. Isaac, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty busy. Chaos with some stuff in my personal life. Um, but good. I've been uh I've I've been doing well. How about you, Cameron? <laughs> Um, also doing, I'm very busy as well, but, uh, doing well. I, I've been playing <laughs> way too much Elden Ring. It's, it's, uh, it's not okay. It's not okay. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of on a, well, I mean, it's debatable how much George R. R. Martin was involved with Elden Ring, but, uh, I just, guess, yeah. we've had a few episodes prior back talking about Game of Thrones and whatnot. And, um, you you feel like you might be interested in in Mr. Martin more now or less or is there is, do you think there's a connection at all with that game? Uh, I don't know. That's I I would say that's not really the reason I like the game. Um, but I I appreciate I you can definitely see his touches in some mm. places. Um, but really it's it's much more of a uh, it's the experience more than anything. I mean it's just. I, I can't even explain it to you. I think the the weird thing about it is it's a game that I was completely lost for the first like 10 hours probably. And then all of a sudden things just clicked in my mind. Um, and I, I, I didn't look back. And there's a point where, you know, you get past a certain section of the game that you kind of think is like the game at right. first. <laughs> and then it expands and your mind is um, utterly exploded by the amount of things there are to do in the game. And then even more so once you like do a couple other things, it just like expands even more and more and more. Uh, it seems to never stop basically. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my dad's a big FromSoft fan and not to get too far into the, the video game conversation on the, um, a movie podcast, but he is just, yeah, he's like, I'm blown away with this game. It's so like, expansive and i and i told him that you have been getting into it and also this is probably well i mean did you did you beat bloodborne is that was that a game that you finished uh, i i think i got like 75 percent of the way through and i put it down for uh some reason but i i really enjoyed my time with bloodborne i feel like this one might be the one that you would you consider this one the one that had the hooks in you or do you think bloodborne was like oh 100 percent. both of them did but this one is like it's on another level. I mean, like, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Bloodborne felt pretty linear and arcadey. Um, some of the conversation I've seen about Dark Souls and uh, Elden Ring, like, I, my experience with Dark Souls sounds a lot like what people were saying about uh, are saying about Elden Ring. I know the complexity is notched up and whatnot, but um, yeah, no, I mean, the game looks phenomenal and. Don't ever watch a speedrunner play it. I'm just gonna tell you that right now, Cameron. It is. Um, I, I've been watching a couple people play the game <laughs> very quickly, beating it on low as a level one character and stuff. It's just absurd. I kind of find that fun. Yeah. Um, like I like I like the people who are willing to do that. My, I am not. Uh, well, one of the reasons, one of the things that I do like about that is they they can teach you so many uh nooks and crannies basically yeah. about the, the 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 world and the game um things that you would never have even thought to do or to think about um it's really yeah it's it's interesting but i for me i 
I like to just get lost in it a little bit. Um, mm. And, you know, there are things where you have to be like, oh, well, if I want to do this, if I want to like upgrade this weapon or whatever, if I want to beat this boss, I really want to focus on getting like three other things to get up to there. So how do I do that? Um, and like finding a roadmap. It's just very, it's very interesting how the game trains you to think in terms of like, what's the next thing you want? to do basically yeah no i mean i i would probably have bought it if i had a ps5 but i actually haven't been playing many video games cameron i've kind of been too on much a game TV of kick yeah a tv kick i mean of course you know it's been a little i mean it's been a couple or a week or so since we last um recorded thanks to juzo stepping on the show um you guys had a good conversation about your 2021 picks if you guys want to listen to that those are probably the two most knowledgeable people i know uh talking about <laughs> movies so if you're interested in that episode uh it's available um but yeah i've been watching game of thrones i just finished season four actually before we started recording today and so i was like oh cameron i need 10 minutes i'm almost done i had to <laughs> i had to see it through you know um yeah the show is like it's very epic it's um fairly exciting it's I think what you said um, a few weeks ago about it being like the way it handles kind of explicit content being juvenile, um, it remains that way, even even in its violence, too, which is it, it's borderline like Tarantino violence, uh, even yeah. even into this. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like at a certain point, you're just like, I feel nothing, you know, like I just this yeah, show is sure. melting my brain. <laughs> um, but it's it's such a strange like, um, you know, I, I, I feel like it's almost kind of like the yin and yang of the show where there's so much depth and lore and storytelling and this awesome nerdy stuff kind of marred down by this, uh, you know, disgusting content you know and it, it kind of disappoints me a little bit and i actually find my patience starting to run pretty thin with it on like character storylines that i don't care about i mean i was texting you about um like theon Greyjoy's char character arc and it's just like why like why am i watching <laughs> like this is just like who cares man like this is just this is just, I don't even know why this is a part of the show, you know? So it's starting to feel a little bit more, not filler, but there are sections of, I guess, the board game or the, you know, the world that it's just, I'm not that interested in. And clearly the people who are putting together the show know you want to spend more time with certain characters like um, uh, Tyrion or, you know, Jon Snow. It's like, we want to see like the people that we care about in the story. We don't really care about these other side characters that are then going to become characters that are more important. But I do think that the show is really interesting the way that it weaves like who the main character of the show is throughout the seasons. Mm, um, yeah. I think it's like, I, I don't think I've ever seen a show or even a movie have the audience questioning who they're rooting for so much. Um, with the way that like, I mean, I was, cause I just finished season four and like the way that the hound is like a prominent character with Arya Stark, this, you're yeah. just kind of like, I didn't expect to spend so much time with this guy who seemed like such a minute side character that you liked. Right. And then he's kind of 
drawn out longer and longer. So I think the show succeeds where it's a side character you enjoy that becomes a mainstay to some regard, right? Um, whereas some other side characters who you don't enjoy are somehow still mainstays and it's like, I don't care. You know, I don't understand why we, we still have to spend time with some of these characters. Um, so maybe that's just me being picky, but still enjoying it. We'll see. Uh, as I just finished, probably, I don't know. I mean, Cameron, you said that, you know, the, the seasons continue to get good, but I feel like it's beginning to decline. I mean, season four ends well, and it's like, I don't know what they're going to do after this, really. I'm not entirely sure yeah, who I'm yeah. supposed to be following, so. See, um, I think I think it pe- the show peaks at three and four as sort of, in terms of storytelling, um, characters you like and are rooting for, um, things that you are interested in. But yeah. five and six still have some really... Um, really great moments uh and and things that are sort of it's it's definitely winding down in terms of quality of writing uh, especially like you know plot wise um the characters i think still maintain a lot of the the dna from from the early show but um you know 7 and 8 is basically where the show jumps the shark in my mind uh so i people like 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 season 7 for some reason, I don't really understand why. I think it's not very good. But yeah, see, seasons one through four, I think are are spot on. They're they're really good. And and you know, as uh as an adaptation of the books, because uh, I read the first three books, um, they do a good job. And I think they balance sort of the the plot lines along with the how much lore they're willing to to give you know from the books i think they do a really good job of managing that and still staying sort of true to the heart of of that story so um yeah i don't know i i uh i think the show does a really good job and then you know eventually peters out like a lot of shows but um it is impressive it is really impressive how much they can uh get you on board with so many different characters and pit them against each other and make you still root for them in some ways. And they did it as early as season one. I noticed when I was kind of, you know, casually rewatching it, they were doing it with Tyrion and with Catelyn Stark and with Catelyn Stark and with Rob. And, you know, there was, there were so many things that were going around that, uh, you know, all conflicted with each other, but you are, you were sort of taking a side on one, one half of that uh, you know versus the other and you never there's a there's a couple people who you hate just in general but for the most part you're the show is very willing to let you realign your allegiances basically yeah um, yeah i it, think it it's, does a really good job with that yeah it's it's definitely well put together like almost to an undeniable level um, in terms of like the quality for TV, especially these these early seasons, what I find curious is that I I don't know how long I will stick with it and if I'll see it through, because with the fourth season ending, I'm sure I'll watch season five, but I kind of have this gut feeling that I might stop soon. I don't know what it is. Mm. I mean, after the, the my initial experience with the show is that I watched the first season. And then I stopped because I was like, well, okay, like I get it. That's pretty neat, you know? Um, and then watching season two, three, four, I was like, this is awesome. 
um, minus some of the, you know, the explicit content that I think is borderline goofy. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see where I finish. But it actually leads me to something else I've been watching, Cameron, which you might be shocked by. Okay. But maybe I'm just on the, uh, on a TV thing for the 2010s. But I recently started watching The Walking Dead again, which oh, okay. I did not expect. <laughs> um, I wanted to start a series with Jules. Um, and I really what? Don't How is this one the one that you chose? I didn't. No, I don't. I actually didn't choose it. We were going oh, through okay, Netflix okay. and Jules was like. I was like, oh, you know, like, have you watched Walking Dead? I think the first season, I remember it being pretty iconic, you know? And yeah. she was like, you know what, Isaac? Like, I don't hate zombies. Like, I think I'll I'll give it a shot with you. And the show really feels like the 2010 version of Lost. I think that's, mm. or I'm sorry, it might have been 2012 that the show came out. I'm not. It, I think it sure. was 2010. Yeah, yeah. The first season. Um, It has this total Lost feeling glazed over by um the zombie apocalypse trope but back then like it wasn't a trope it was exciting and yes i know 28 days later did it better or whatever right <laughs> but there's something about this first season that feels so far separated from the zombie exhaustion um mm. it's really kind of like sweet to revisit um it's really <laughs> i mean i guess compared to like the horrific violence in game of thrones that i'm watching it's way it's way less gross and violent than i thought it was as a kid and i'm I, i'm pretty sure like watching it back then added to the horror and also i remember watching more of like season two and three and four and the budgets go up like we're, yeah, we're already the violence into... gets way worse as yeah. the series goes along <laughs> yes yeah um so i don't know if juliana is going to be able to handle it but yeah. she doesn't seem to care so much so far um to the point where now she's just watching it without me, which I find kind of surprising, right? Although she she loved Lost, and I think it's given her that Lost energy with, yeah. the, sh with the show. So we finished season one, um, which I had actually never seen all the way through. Um, the show's pretty, I don't know. It's, it's pretty like the first season feels kind of B-movie zombie, like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I didn't feel like it was great or bad, but it was it was fun to kind of revisit it. And going into season two, you can feel the characters begin to kind of have some air and, and feel the drama and whatnot. Um, I just remember The Walking Dead feeling like it covered a lot more characters than it does. Uh, so rewatching it in comparison to um, Game of Thrones is like, really interesting because as a kid watching i was like there's so many characters i don't know who's gonna die and i don't even know why i care about some of these people dying and rewatching it now i'm like oh that's because they don't spend very much time with any of these characters and mm. they have two lines and then get eaten or whatever right right, right, right. um yeah, exactly. so yeah <laughs> it's it's um it's been fun to revisit i don't think we'll stick with it too much um i think jules is invested in like Obviously, Rick and Shane and Lori's like, you know, love triangle drama. Um, I think that's kind of like that's probably the biggest like character tension for all of them. And there's also some, you know, there's an interesting tension between Daryl and Rick and um, the guy who like ends up locking up 
like Daryl's brother on the roof in season mm-hmm. one. Yeah. There's like this tension and like some, you know, racism and whatnot. But that just kind of like peters away. Like, like there's no, uh, then nobody ever dr- addresses it, right? It just kind of happens. Um, uh, Well, I mean, no spoilers, I guess. But yeah, there, there's certain things from season one that come back up. Um, not the interesting things that I would have liked, but uh, <laughs> some of the other things that end up cropping back up. Yeah, I, I watched, I think, season up to season four. Um, and it, it really takes a nosedive. I think season four was really yeah. extremely frustrating for me because I, I like season one a lot as far as I can remember. Um, and I really liked season two, even though people thought the first half of season two was boring. I remember that was like totally the line back then. Um, but the, I, I think season two is really good um personally but after that i mean it just it just seriously takes a dive and i think i think a lot of the uh yeah i could not get invested in the rest of of the show but if interesting that that's the the show that you chose to watch it's it's kind of funny i i would not have expected that um i want to tell you about a show that i watched um it's called severance and it's on Apple TV Plus. Uh, it is only the first season is out. It, it came out very recently. So um, I think it came out this month or last month or something. Um, and it stars Adam Scott. Um, and it is fantastic. It is really, really good. Um, kind of a sci-fi, almost like de- the, I don't know if you saw the show Devs, um, but mm. a little bit of those vibes. But it's about a, a world where this company, you know, hires employees that ha- have to undergo a procedure where they split their mind basically between work and between, you know, their home life. So they can't bring any memories from work into, um, in, you know, back from work after they get off the elevator, they've forgotten everything that goes on. And so the, there's sort of an implicit mystery in that is why would that, possibly be the case why would you need that um and then you know there's there's also sort of a uh, a moral question of you know what does this mean for these people are they sort of separate do they have separate intentions inside work or you know outside work and it's very interesting and yeah the the last episode definitely leaves off on a a cliffhanger um it's really uh, really interesting. So excited to to see it. You know, it got renewed for a second season. So excited to see it come back eventually. And yeah, I I would recommend it. It's it's a short watch. Um, you know, nine episodes. They're about like forty five minutes. So you know, not too much in terms of TV, but yeah, would 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 recommend it for sure. I do want to get to the movie that we're supposed to talk about and kick off uh, Kubrick month. But I do want to pick your brain, Cameron, a little bit on Apple TV or Apple TV plus or whatever the heck it's called. Because from what I heard, it's been, hasn't it been like, it's won special awards, right? Have we had this conversation on the show? Like already uh, you, you mentioned, I think a few weeks ago that Apple TV plus has like, been nominated as a streaming service for an Oscar, right? No, it, it, won, Oscar. it won the Best Picture. It's the first streaming service um, to to win Best Picture. So, so I mean, 
I guess what I want to ask you, not that that gives it any legitimacy, but yeah, (laughs) sure. Sure. But I guess what I want to ask you is like, you have this subscription at least for a little, right? What are your thoughts on it? Because I, I feel like Apple TV, I mean, people that subscribe want to watch Ted Lasso or something. Yeah. Um, I'm not entirely sure what's going on over there. I don't really want to add another subscription service, but what are your impressions of it? Like, and the content? Cause it's, there's like murmurings of it being excellent. And I'm like, if I had to pick between Netflix and Apple TV, I'm kind of like, maybe I should go with Apple TV. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about Netflix obviously is it has a large, um, has a large, you know, base in terms of, of how many, how much is on there. I mean, it's been around for a long time, but I think what's interesting about Apple TV plus, and the reason why, you know, back when it was announced, I predicted it was going to stay for, for, for real, unlike like CNN plus or like, you know, whatever streaming services are out there. Paramount um, plus I got to watch despicable me three tonight. I know. Man. Yeah. Paramount plus they, there's like so many of these things. And I was, I was saying that the, the only ones that would work that would make it are um well obviously netflix and amazon prime which are the legacy ones um and have been around for a long time and then the new the newcomers the only ones that would make it would be apple tv plus and uh and disney plus and the what only about, reason what about I, hbo gaming uh that it doesn't really count it's it's sort of i it, that's a gray area there because hbo has been a long-standing like add-on for TV, you know, premium TV um, subscription, basically. And so them having a, a, you know, a streaming service is basically what everybody has been asking for for like a very long time. So it, it's, it doesn't really count. I would put it in more of the legacy collection, basically. Um, okay. But but in, in my mind, Apple TV Plus, well, one, they've been throwing a ton of money at it. Um, and this is why you've seen so much uh, press about you know whether or not it's good. Um, the fact that they are throwing around these budgets and throwing around these you know these names and you know stars, it it's it's impressive, but it also you know speaks to sort of the level of quality I think that they're trying to go for. They're making a premium service, uh, a premium Netflix that you know basically they I think I feel like they want you to be able to pick anything and have it be good. And Netflix, I don't think is like that where you can pick, you know, they, you can, they have like a shuffle button basically where, you know, you could try one thing and it'll probably be bad, but I think Apple TV plus, they want it to be a very curated and very high end service. Another thing that is beneficial for it is obviously it's tied into the Apple ecosystem. The only reason I have it is because it was included in my, uh, you know, I bought a phone not too long ago and it came with it. So, um, you know, it, that's a positive for it. And I think, I think it's here to stay. Um, and I, you know, the only things that I've seen from it, I've seen Coda, I've seen On the Rocks, and I've seen Severance. And those three things have been all pretty excellent. So um, kudos to Apple. I think they're doing doing a good job. I think this was a smart move for them to get into, um, you know, this kind of niche, very high-end market. Um, and obviously it's paying dividends for them. So, yeah. Do they have, like, regular movies on there? Like, regular stuff that... 
I don't know. Like no, they didn't make. It's all. It's all. I I think I I don't know exactly, but I'm pretty sure it's all original content. Wow. Yeah, it seems like Apple's approach, even in gaming, is like curation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because so much of what they were trying to manage, having like this, basically a platform that's so big that like, you know, you think of the App Store. There's just so many apps crowding in. Is like they're trying to curate on top of all this content. I just wonder what how they're going to apply that to their their music stuff. Um, it, it will be interesting, but yeah, they're 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 trying to go for that. And yeah, I wanted to just hear your opinions about it, Cameron. Um, this is of course Cinema Spectator. You can support us at patreon.com slash ECFS Productions. Throw a couple dollars our way, get exclusive benefits like uh, exclusive episodes. We have one coming out with Cameron and Juzo this month. Cameron, what are you guys talking about? Yeah, so we did a sort of. Um, alternate history Oscars of the movies that we thought deserved to win. Um, and it's kind of an interesting discussion where we pick apart a little bit of what we talked about last week, um, go into more detail in terms of what we think, you know, should have won best actor, actress, you know, things like that. So a little more in depth, uh, a little nerdier maybe, but, um, yeah, we, we talk about that. It's, it's a, it's a good time. Uh, it should be posted pretty soon yep so you can get access to that show at just the dollar level again at patreon.com slash ecfs productions and you can find other benefits like writing in questions by dming us all of our patreons don't do it so if you want a question read on air yes we do check and there are no dms so patreons come on guys hit us up and for the rest of you if you want those benefits you know where to find it If you don't have a few dollars, it's all good. You can support our show by giving us a rating or sharing the show with friends and family. All that stuff helps Uh, us release an episode weekly. So we appreciate your support. We appreciate your guys' time just hanging out and talking about movies. Cameron, it's time to get into Stanley Kubrick month. I'm a little scared of this month, but I, I, (laughs) I haven't seen anything bad by him. So, I mean, I don't know. I just, I know he's a weird guy, you know? Yes, yes. Well, it's interesting because I was telling you before that you've seen quite a few of his movies. Um, this is like jumping into, I forget, there was another director that we watched where you had seen, you had actually seen a couple of his movies um, going into it. But this one is interesting. I, I love Stanley Kubrick. He was kind of one of the first directors to get me into thinking about film in a more in-depth and sort of uh, logical maybe way, analytical way. Um and Paths of Glory, in my mind, has been one of my underappreciated movies of his. Um, I saw it a while ago. I think I was in high school. Um, I think I might have watched it for a class or something. And, you know, I was I it was good. I, you know, had probably at that point I had no connection to Kubrick as a filmmaker. Um, and I I kind of shelved it for a little bit. And then I rewatched it in college after I was much more familiar with Kubrick and um, it quickly became one of my, uh, you know, a standout of his, I would say. Um, And Kubrick is a very interesting guy because later in his, uh, (laughs) later in his career, he started to, I would say, become more and more um, distant with the camera and with the story, distant from sort of the human emotion and the human lens of things. You actually see this, uh, you you mentioned that you've watched Full Metal Jacket. And I think this is a really interesting comparison to Paths of Glory, you know, both being 
war movies. Um, uh, Paths of Glory is not contemporaneous with uh, with World War One as uh, Full Metal Jacket was, you know, somewhat close to Vietnam, but um, it still sort of has the same energy of being very anti-war, being very um, cynical about the war-making machine and about sort of leadership uh, and decision-making in, in terms of war. But I would say Full Metal Jacket is very much a late-stage Kubrick movie, whereas Paths of Glory is is very much a an early Kubrick movie. He's much less... <laughs> this sounds funny to say because it's an extremely cynical movie, but I think he's much less cynical in this movie than he is in Full Metal Jacket. Mm -hmm. And I think he's much more human and willing to take sort of a human uh, perspective. Though it was interesting to me on this rewatch to see how much he was able to um, pull in that uh, that darkness that was obviously there, you know, in in his uh, in his psyche, he he was very much still able to pull his weight. And I think the ending of this movie is extremely haunting. And the fact that he was able to get it, I, I mean. I don't I don't remember if this was primarily released in um in the UK or pri primarily released in uh the US. I think it was in the US. I think this was a Hollywood movie. But um it's surprising that I would say it's surprising that this movie got past the censors. Um partially because um it's a very dark movie and I don't think it 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 comes across as a very hopeless movie in a lot of ways, which I don't feel like is very common in movies of the late fifties. So I'm interested in talking to you about that. And uh, also I, I kind of want to gauge your um, knowledge level about Kubrick and talk a little bit about what you've seen, but first, yeah, let's, let's get into paths of glory. What did you think? Yeah, this film, I think at first, was a little bit hard for me to get into. I think it it has a very slow start, um, a start where you're like, "What are we? What are we trying to get at with this film?" Um, it feels like a fairly conventional war movie at the beginning, with generals being like, "We gotta go do this objective," and then the conversation really shifts when there is a failed operation and upper management, you know, begins to blame the men on the ground for the failure, even though the operation was kind of, you know, doomed in the first place. Right. And so I, I think as soon as that shift happened, um, although there are some early conversations that kind of spark some interest in what's going on, right. Um, to watch this compared to, um, like, what we watched 1917 recently, like the yeah. World War um, one sequence in that compared to this at the beginning. Like I was a little bit less impressed just being a casual viewer. But um, as the operation for them to take the hill begins, I'm like, OK, I'm kind of interested to see what's going on. And then the drama with the upper uh, commanders or whatever being like, oh, these guys are being cowards, even though they're all getting blown to bits. Right. Um, I was like, yep. Definitely full metal jacket energy right here, you know? Yeah. Uh, and as soon as they get, they get to the courtroom or the trial, 
that's when for me the movie began to became become like really like special um i think it's like something something clicks in it because it's it's trying to even if it's like a little too forward it's trying to say something much deeper beyond the film and beyond the action um and i was pretty taken back by this old movie getting into some of the topics that it's getting at it's mm-hmm. pretty um unapologetic in the uh injustice at hand yeah and i think what makes it so powerful is that you believe that this is something that could happen you know and i don't know how they make you believe it but there's like this evil or something that's like brewing um behind the show of war or something like that and so i yeah i like I began to really dig it as the movie went on, even into its depressing ending. Um, I was kind of like, I'm surprised that's where it's going. I don't know if I understand its statements besides bleak trust in humanity. I do believe that the film's messages are at full swing in the courtroom. And really, this movie, to me, like kind of will remain in my memory as the courtroom scene. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as almost as like a courtroom drama and, you know, partially, even though, uh, you know, unlike um, witness for the prox- prosecution where it is very much, you know, that's kind of the whole sequence of the movie in a lot of ways. And the drama comes out of the courtroom. This is basically, you. it's a show trial and you know it from the beginning. There's no, there's no hope. And you know, that there's, it's, it's, it's a much bleaker, uh, it's, it's a much bleaker version of witness for the prosecution basically. But I, I agree with you in the way that, um, much of the statement and the messages of the movie are, are expressed in that, in that sequence. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, so overall I feel like satisfied with the film. I don't know if it's a movie that I am jumping over the moon for where I'm like, this is something that people need to see. But I, I, I think some of the messaging um, is super effective. And, you know, I, I feel like I respect the way that it was put together. And I really, um, I really like Kirk Douglas. I mean, I know, I don't know if that's like, I don't know if that's, I'm not saying that's a hot take or anything like that, (laughs) but uh, you know, I just, from the few films that we've watched with him, Ace in the um, Hole being the other one, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, that guy's got such a presence on screen. Uh, and it's in full swing at the courtroom scene where he delivers an excellent, excellent speech. And even at the end of the movie with his um, kind of uh, discussion with the head honcho general or whatever, like th- that, that delivery and the performance like begging for these kind of like snooty war leaders to like consider the men on the ground. Like it's, it's convincing, it's compelling, it's emotional, you know? So I, I thought this film overall was good. I, I think the movie starts a little slow and I was pretty disinterested at the beginning, but as it, 
as it came forward and to the end, I was like, yeah, there's like a really messed up side that only Kubrick can bring out, you know, a really dark, depressing (laughs) element to this film. And you don't really see that kind of stuff with, um, kind of like black and white movies too. I mean, I know a lot of the, the old black and white movies we watch, like they have almost forced happy endings. Um, I mean, like, I love The Apartment. We've talked about The Apartment a lot. Uh, that movie could have ended a lot worse and been just as strong. Um, but but thankfully, it doesn't end so terribly. It's just, of course, Kubrick can just... Um, I don't know. Like, it, the ending, there was like... I don't know why, but like watching the final, I guess, execution, um, there's like a feeling of like... Maybe they're going to get away. Maybe Kirk Douglas mm. is going to stand up and say something because it's an old movie. You know, yeah, they wouldn't yeah, actually yeah. do this, <laughs> you know. And then when they say like ready, aim, it kind of hits you. You're like, there's n- nothing that's going to happen. These guys are going to die, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just it just kind of like. And they move on. It's a really hard cut too after after the that that scene happens right where the two generals are chatting away at breakfast yeah and then they're they're just you know sort of happily you know chatting at breakfast oh yeah they're like oh what an excellent yeah they're like what an excellent (laughs) killing this morning you know there was no resistance none of the men tried to run away or anything like (laughs) yeah almost like almost like insulting the viewer right uh as it because you were you were hoping you know? Yeah, they're gloating. Ho- they're gloating about what you, <laughs> the fact what you that, had to sit through. Yeah, you right? wanted them to get away, and they didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I think there's something really special about it. I, I think it's hard for me to, like the the messaging. I think is critical, and I think you can pull away pretty strong agreement. Uh, with the film but i'm not entirely sure who would disagree with this movie right um <laughs> yeah maybe, may, well the maybe french government of, in in the 70s <laughs> sure well yeah but like but it could have uh, honestly the fact that they were french i wasn't even considering i mean unless it's based on a true story or something uh, so, it's based on a book, but the the why I bring that up is because the French they banned this movie. Switzerland banned this movie at one point. Um, so did Franco's Spain. So you know it's it's been through controversy. Obviously, this is a, an extremely anti-war movie. I mean, it's it's very clear that that's what it is. In the same way that, um, you know, we'll watch we're gonna watch uh, uh, Doctor Strange Love next time. So um, we'll we'll dive into this deeper, but. Um, that is like even on the more opposite side of things of being a an extreme anti-war movie um and then you know in the same way that uh that full metal jacket is basically you know it's 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 like yeah it's it's turned up to 11 the yeah. <laughs> the amount of anti-war but but i would say even more so um like i kind of said last time uh, talking about 1917 i mean that that movie i think has a much more um positive uh aura around it i don't know what it is but i i think of that movie as kind of a 
uh, <laughs> a more heartwarming movie than this is for some reason, uh, even though it's it's not really. But um, the I think the even more uh, disturbing part of this movie is how uh, not I mean, obviously, it's it's not the amount of people who die at, you know, who you see, you know, slaughtered at, uh, you know, crossing, trying to get the anthill. Um, it's the just cavalier nature that people are willing to, to deal with, um, other people's lives basically, you know, and your commanding officers. Um, and I think, I think there's, there's something so dark, even in the very beginning, you know, he talks about, uh, he he goes through, he just runs through the percentages of how many people are going to die. It, you know, trying to go for this. And it's like, wow, that is, that's so, that's so cruel. And, you know, then the, you know, it gets notched up and notched up and notched up where, you know, after they're just dealing in raw percentages of, you know, treating men essentially as fodder, you know, for the enemy, then they, you know, he orders them to start shelling on their own people because they're not, you know, doing what he wants. And then, you know, even more so, he wants to make examples of them because, you know, they didn't do what they're told and d- go die, basically. So so even more, you know, the the amount of sort of callousness is on full display here. And I think that's kind of the I think that's the beauty of this movie is just how um, how cavalier you know, the, the generals are with, um, you know, wanting almost like wanting the, their own men to die, essentially, you know, treating them as their, the enemy, uh, for some reason. And, and it, um, there's like a backwards nature that you, you see, you see sparks of that sort of extreme cynicism that goes on with, with full metal jacket. I mean, you see, you see that sort of take its roots in this movie, uh, which is why I think it's so brilliant. I mean, I, I would be remiss to, to mention there's, there's a, a beautiful, um, a beautiful review of the, of this movie by, uh, Roger Ebert, who he talks about how sort of the end, uh, is reminiscent the, you know, the ending sequence, uh, where they're all singing, in the bar is sort of reminiscent of Casablanca where there's that scene where, um, you know, they're singing, um, I I think it's the French national anthem. Um, Right. Right. And this is like a complete reversal in terms of, of the tropes of that, that scene. And, and it's, it's very much, you know, in that scene, it's, it's a call for, um, you know, unity and it's very hopeful um, and everybody sort of gathers around and they're, you know, hoorah. Um, and in this movie, it's very much the opposite of that. It's it's a reflection on sort of how brutal um, these people are, you know, not only treating each other, but treating sort of their enemy and treating, you know, their their captives. And it's it's a very... I think the last sequence is um, very haunting and beautiful um, in a way that that I think defies even explanation in a lot of sense. It, it, it you know, it's a feeling that you get from from the final scene of being 
just very it's very somber it's it's sad actually it's a very sad sequence whereas you know in a movie that was a happier movie that would be sort of a call for oh but it's okay you know there's justice on the other side you know we're if only we can you know we could win the war or whatever you know but in this movie it's very much um it's just a sad reflection on uh on how much these people are you know being used as as sheep essentially you know it's very it's very dark yeah i mean the ending sequence i think is kind of reflecting on ideas about like there are no winners in war you know i it feels like patriotism is dead in the ending scene yeah right yeah there's no um even though this like prisoner is like you know singing and whatnot and they're she's supposed to be the enemy on stage like these guys like don't care anymore you know they don't care if she's the enemy per se like they're they're suffering they're tortured by it anyways like either way yeah right um and i think you you get that i think like this movie displays anti-war thoughts or or a promotion of being more like pacifist but like with a blame on the leadership in in a unique way um i I just don't know what more it's trying to say than that. And that's fine. Like you can make an anti-war movie and, you know, I just, something about 1917 felt, um, or it resonated with me more and it could be a subjective aspect, right? I just think there's something about that film that relays the human journey outside of the context of war, you know? Um, or the, the human experience outside of war. And I just, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't know. Something about that to me was like very, very deep and had me considering moments of my normal life after like reflecting the film. This movie doesn't have me thinking about anything besides the fact that people are, a disappointment or don't have any regard for other people I or something like that, you know? Um, and war is bad, but it, most of those thoughts I didn't need to watch a movie to know, you know, it just, I felt the movie displayed that emotion effectively. Right. And so maybe it's more of a feeling movie than it is a message movie. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a explosion of emotion. Um, that is stated through film and we can kind of group together and come alongside the flaws of, of, you know, humanity and just feel them for a moment. Right. I mean, I Cameron, you know, we're you, both you and I are musicians and sometimes you listen to angry music or screamo music or something like that. And it's pretty just, I mean, like, I, I like punk music, right? And let's be honest, like kind of to its core, punk music is pretty emo, you know, like it's it's just like it's just being angsty and it wants to feel that, you know? Uh and I'm like, good, you know, sometimes you gotta get that out, 
you got to feel that. I'm not going to look at this and say it's not it's it's devoid of meaning because it's not making a new statement or anything like that. Sure. Um, yeah. I think this movie's like victory is it's being it's expressing a common feeling in a powerful way, even though it might not be stating something new. Right. Yeah. Well, and I would say that that was something I think you basically said the same thing about The Shining. And I think it's it's true of uh, a lot of, if not all of Kubrick's movies, that um, he's a director who sort of as much as his characters and sort of his writing style is divorced from sort of human emotion in a lot of ways, um, his his movies impart to you a, a, a particular feeling that is a little bit hard to describe and a little bit um, mysterious. And it's not that you always know what the meaning of his, one of his films is, you know, like the, the shining, I don't think you can decipher necessarily a, like one solid meaning of that movie. Um, other than sort of procrastination is bad. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know in i mean in all seriousness that movie is much more of a um of an emotional ride and a a, a ride that s- sort of your challenge to bring your own expectations to the to the table um and the way that you feel about the characters is just as important as sort of what's going on on screen um and so in a lot of ways, I think that is kind of a defining element to Kubrick's style is sometimes he kind of just throws out, I think this movie is is very, not like this, but uh, it, it's very clear and, you know, almost rudimentary in its uh, storytelling, but, and which is totally fine, but sometimes Kubrick ends up throwing out all story entirely essentially and and he really just focuses on he hones on in on what sort of these visuals and what this um what the film can impart to you in in a in a raw emotional element um and in some ways you know that's why he's he's a master class director um so i i agree with you that there's you know this isn't really a a message movie, even though it kind of is, obviously it's a very anti-war movie, but uh, it's not in the same way because it, it really is about sort of the, the spiral, the descending spiral of your emotions with these characters. You know, you, you start from, from having, you know, you, you start from like almost gripping on to the last little bits of hope, you know, for these characters and then, you know, throughout the movie, you just see it evaporate in your hands. And, you know, by the end, you're you're completely, you know, you're you're basically it's it's a doomed uh, perspective that you're you're left with, <laughs> um, which, again, as we said, is is extremely uh, unique for movies of this time period. And I think, um, you know, Kubrick is. I think Wilder, uh, who we talked about a little bit with the apartment, he's someone who was always able to, to sort of curtail his darkest elements with some humor and some fun and a little bit of, uh, you know, raunchiness, I guess. But 
Kubrick, I think, is is completely trying to dive into his um, cynicism, and and I I think it's interesting, you know, where he goes in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's not as interesting, but um, for the most part, he's he's a brilliant director and uh, not very good at portraying human emotions, I would say, but very good at making you feel them. So, sure, yeah, I think, I mean, a concept that I talk about a lot when you know Jules is writing music or um, or other musicians I'm working with are writing music is. Sometimes you just want to feel it and you don't really care what it means, you know? Yeah. Or another thing I say is sometimes it doesn't matter if it's written complex. You're losing the feeling because you want to add a diminished seventh chord, right? You know, like you're 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 taking away from the groove and and that that like if it doesn't feel right, it's like it's not winning you know and i think or it's not winning over the audience i think although kubrick's ideas in this movie are kind of like universally agreed and they're not very you know controversial and i don't even know if this movie is really saying anything new or very like profound but there's something about the way that it it feels you know i think one of my favorite reviews that we've done on this show cameron looking back is my our conversation around the Godfather part one and two, where I said, I understood the first movie, but I didn't feel it. And the second movie I said, I felt it, but I didn't understand, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I would yeah. rather feel a movie than understand it. Um, with, you know, the, but, but maybe here, here's where I want, <laughs> this is, this is what I want to say about that, you know, because when I say something like that, I feel like you can spin that all the way into the worst artistic, <laughs> weird films and stuff. Like, the hardest thing about feeling it and not understanding it is that most audience members are very subjective and come with their own perspective into a film experience that wants you to feel something. You know, I think it's rare for any form of art to be able to give a consistent feeling to a whole group of people that, that views it. Yeah. And that feeling like landing successfully with everyone, you know, so everybody comes from a different walk of life. Right. Um, and I think although this movie's statements are, you know, pretty universal, if not obvious. Right. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know. I don't really understand who would be pro war, you know, um, unless you're well, the I, the commanders who are, you know, getting promotions and you know, being war heroes, you know, I mean, that's, I know, guess that's one of the, the criticisms, you know, is sort of the self, uh, aggrandizement of the people who are willing to, to let other people die while they're, you know, hanging around having parties in their, in their palace basically. But, yeah. but I think most people who sat down and tried to take in this movie would come away with a similar feeling to the last audience member. Uh, and it would feel or and it would be kind of like this universal understanding with with this with this movie. Um does that make sense what I'm saying, Kevin? Yeah. Um yeah, no. I I I understand what you mean and I think this 
is a good example of, you know, some a movie that sort of meets in the middle where it is very understandable and like you said almost universal um but the and the feeling of it is is really what's pronounced and what makes it excellent so uh yeah i i don't necessarily think that the content or the complexity of the content is what always sells it i am usually critical of movies that think they're saying something important when it's already been said do you know what i mean but this movie isn't trying to be like, we're telling you something new. Instead, it's like helping you feel what you've heard before, you know? Um, I Just to kind of like complete this thought around feeling versus, you know, understanding, right? Um, there's a song a lot of people know. I like to bring it up often um, by an artist called M83. And the song is called Midnight City. It's a song that your alternative radio station still plays to this day. Um, and it came out in 2011. Midnight City is one of those songs that just hits with synths. And people are like, I feel this song. And that's why it's still being played to this day. But most people don't know that it repeats the same lyric. Let's see. I pulled up the lyrics for you guys. Nine times it repeats the same line of lyrics nine times in a row. Okay, you wouldn't know that the song is like what four minutes, three minutes, four minutes, and then there are only five unique lines of lyrics in the song at all, right? Um, and the melodies change, and there is a variation in emotion and delivery of the lyric. Uh, lyrics in the song so i don't think most people consider uh midnight cities which is now a classic of the 2010s um as being a, a song that you know is rep repetition and and kind of obnoxious the content isn't there you know it's not saying something it's going to be a classic because it's felt do you know what i mean uh and it's not even making you feel something that is super deep Although, you know, music, it's hard because it kind of pairs with life and memory, right? But I don't know. I just, I, I love this example of this song where it's like, it has such little that it's saying, but it has so much that it's feeling. And I think um, this movie has a lot to say, although it's ideas that I think most people can rally behind. It's really more of the fact that it lets you rally behind these um pretty uh what i would argue is like pretty obvious feelings right and it lets you or uh, uh, these pretty obvious ideas and it lets you really feel them you know like it yeah. lets you like want to stand up or it makes you kind of want to be mad it makes you want to be cynical you know yes um, yeah and i don't know who could get through this movie and not feel that you know sure and uh, so i that's why i have to i have to give it a bravo, you know, I, I just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's not a movie that I'm like jumping to recommend to people, but there, there's a universal thing to this movie. And I think Kubrick, he has that in my past experience. When you talk about 2001, right? My dad is not an artistic movie guy, right? But he was like, I was like, oh, we're watching 2001 for the podcast, what, a year ago or something. And he was like, oh, yeah, really? You know, I've seen that movie. It's, you know, weird. Not really, like, not really my thing. And I was like, well, you know, 
I got to watch it. And he's like, let's watch it together. Like he was like, really? <laughs> like just, I've never heard him talk about this movie ever. You know, and he's sitting there and he's like, yep, like this is, this is it. This is a classic, you know? Um, and I'm like, really? Like I've never like even heard you say anything about this film, but it's the same with, you know, The Shining is like, it, it kind of has this, this thing where people know it and they felt it and they're connected to it. And therefore it's like, even though it's pretty dark, you know, these, all of these movies are kind of dark and, and twisted. It's like, everyone's like, yeah, but I've, we, we felt it. It's not that we even like it. It's that there's something about it, you know, that we've all felt together when we've seen it. Yeah. It stirs something in you. Yeah. 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 Um, I hope I haven't gone too far into like, um, you know, uh, like into a direction that seems unapproachable because if you watch this movie and you don't feel it, I get that's okay. You know, I just, I would have a hard time being like, maybe, maybe you just couldn't pay attention at the beginning or maybe that boring entry, like has it not resonating or something like that? Or it's black and white, so it's boring. Like, I've been there. I understand that, you know? I just... I think that um, it's cool to see Kubrick be still great at this early on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's 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 kind of, you know... Ho hopefully that wasn't too much of a ramble, Cameron. Is there no, anything I, you want to add to that? Um, well, I want to mention a couple things. Um just in terms of, you know, production wise that I think are interesting. Um, the first is that, uh, the German woman who, uh, you know, sings in the end that actually, uh, ends up being, um, uh, Kubrick's wife uh, the next year. So he marries uh, the German woman and I believe they were married f until he dies. So, uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I thought that was a, a nice little fact. And uh, in terms of of you know Kubrick's very long lasting relationships with you know with actors, um, the person who plays Private Pierre Arnaud, who is the guy who gets punched and uh, you know is is the one dangling on the uh, right. on the stretcher, um, he Con is that, actually that was like that was like a moment where you're like. This this movie is mad. You yeah. know? Like this movie <laughs> yeah. is like just genuinely just like hates whoever would do something like this. Right? right, right. Um I I don't know if you recognized him, but I'll give you a uh uh I'll give you a guess as to who he is. Um you've seen him before. So do you hmm. do you rec did you recognize him? I didn't recognize him, but if I had to take a guess. I would say he's an actor that is one of the astronauts in 2001. No, um, oh. close though. That's that's not that's close. Um, he is the bartender in The Shining. Um, Very cool. Yeah, that so. that's a great role. That's like a really cool like yeah yeah wow. Um, so yeah, it, it's it. He, you can definitely tell, but if you weren't looking for it and you didn't notice, um, you know, like that's that's something that you would miss. I I would I missed it. Um, before looking at, yeah. looking at the IMDb page. So, um, yeah, a couple interesting things. I would say I recommend this movie. Um, 
it's an interesting double bill with 1917. I think they both hit mm-hmm. on really different things, but are very similar in a lot of ways. Um, I think the sequences, you know, sort of the one major action sequence in this movie um, is really good and is is very reminiscent of some of those scenes in in 1917. Um, super intense and and very, you know, you get that that sense. You know, in 1917 when he's sort of at the very end, he's running out of the um running out of the the bunker as everybody charges i got the same sort of a very similar sense with um with this movie and yeah it's interesting to see and i think the way that kubrick moves the camera in this movie is very interesting and um you can already see that even early on he has a sense of uh he he has a, a very unique eye for this sort of thing um, yeah, there's a shot pretty early on that I noticed where you're looking across Dead Man's Land, but you don't really realize that the camera's moving backwards when you're taking in the scenery, and then suddenly you're coming through a bunker window, and then you're looking at a guy who's peering out through the window. It's just interesting how your focus is pulled from yeah the landscape to a new setting inside the bunker, and now you're looking at the guy who's peering out over it just like you were a moment ago. There, there's some pretty unique, um, I guess, talking. There's like unique... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, that doesn't make sense, what I'm trying to say. There's a unique expression in the camera work. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, well, and even, even with that, uh, the dialogue scenes are shot very well. I, th- I, I This is one kind of underrated thing that Kubrick does, um, he is a master of giving you different things to look at in, in dialogue sequences and making you not feel bored. And even in the beginning, the opening sequence, um, I was struck by how much he's moving and how much these people, are, you know, these characters are sort of playing off their body language within each other, sort of implying things in a way that they're not saying. And it's very, if you're obviously, if you're not, um, it's hard to pick up on if you're not looking for it right in the beginning, but you know, the way that he does it is so unique. And, and I would say, unlike most people who were working, you know, back in those days, I, I feel like mm. he's someone who really mastered the art of showing you things and showing you intentions through the way that the camera is, you know, essentially looking at people. And that has definitely been lost uh, nowadays. I think, I think there's a there's an art to shooting dialogue scenes that are interesting. And I would say Game of Thrones, we mentioned it. Um they they always find a way to uh put something uh, either explicit or you know they they explain away a lot of dialogue using uh other methods instead of interesting camera work. Usually there's some standout moments, but um yeah, so yeah, I would say Kubrick I don't know. Kubrick he he's great at shooting these dialogue sequences that might have been boring, but you know, in other in someone else's hands, but end up being really engaging. So, man, now I, I forget the movies that we watched recently, but I think there was a movie we watched that I specifically remember being like, these camera shots are so whack for every dialogue scene. Man, oh. <laughs> 
Bless. I've been like have it, holding in that sneeze this whole podcast. <laughs> I don't know if you've been noticing. I've been like itching my nose. Good lord. Um, let's see. I'm looking back at the at the list. I think nineteen. Yeah, nineteen eighty four was probably what I was thinking of. Um, very weird. Was whack Camera the dialogue angles. scenes? I mean, there's a ton of talk. Like, if you think about the, they're like talking, uh, in the in the final. I don't think you said this at all. <laughs> You're probably right. No, but I swear, I swear, like there was a movie recently that we watched where it was like the camera was up someone's nose when they're talking. I was like, what is even happening in these dialogue scenes? Not necessarily that these sets are, um, like full full of interesting, weird, like objects, which I did notice in this film. There's like the there's different things like on the desk or. Um, you're considering the position of the the lieutenant that has the drinking bottle, like when you know uh, Kirk Douglas walks in. And you're, I I don't know. They kind of play with the way that there are pieces on the set that you're if you're bored and they're talking, you suddenly pay attention to things, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it's if it's um. Sorry. Oh, did I lose? Did I lose you there? Yeah. What just happened. It was my bad. Oh. I don't know where to pick up. Anyways, you're probably right. <laughs> yes. Well, anyways, um, I think we should we should call it there. But um, technical issues are the ma- are, are massive discouragement for Cameron. He's just quitting. He's calling it a night. <laughs> no, done. no. I well, I mean, we were wrapping up the conversation, anyways. But um, yes, I think so. But Cameron, do you recommend this film? Let's let's give it a rating. Of course, I recommend this film for. Uh, I would say the casuals. I think this movie is pretty approachable. Um, it has definitely has a lot of dialogue, but it's balanced with action. It's balanced with sort of the the drama element, which you know is is always interesting. And I think I think Kirk Douglas is just magnanimous on screen. He, he's he's someone who is always watchable. I don't know why he he has yeah. his face and his energy. Um, He's just someone who who you you want to root for, even though he's always he's always going up against the odds uh, <laughs> in his movies. But uh, yeah, no, I I uh, I like this movie a lot. I think it's I think it's brilliant. So highly recommended. If you like Kubrick and have not seen this movie, I think it's worth you know I th- I think like probably five of his later movies are. Um, you know, what most people watch who are like Kubrick fans. Um, But if this isn't in the list for you as someone who's, you know, maybe a Kubrick fan, totally watch it. It's, it's well, well worth diving into. And it's his, it's definitely his best early, early film for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I, I agree with you. This movie's for the casuals. The only reason that I don't rate it for everyone, which I was considering is for some reason, the beginning I was very neutral on. It's not that I disliked it, uh, but it's not that I liked it. I was just kind of like, all right, this movie's going. And then like, it wasn't the action piece or action set piece that kind of like made it click with me. There was a little tingle with the grenade murder that happens Mm. kind of towards the beginning. Right. Uh, And I was like, okay, something, something is becoming something darker is coming forward. Yeah. That's some drama. (laughs) Yeah. And then like, as we move into shelling the men in the assault 
of the hill. Um, the movie takes a pretty hard turn after the action set piece and deals with the drama and the court case. And I was like, that's when I was like, oh, I'm starting to like love this film. Yeah. Like I, it, it was, it, it went from like neutral to like, I want to see it through and I'm excited about whatever's going on here. Um, I'm feeling it. So I think there's, there might be a little bit of confusion. I mean, if you've listened to this podcast, you're getting to this point, um, watch it. Cause you have the context of the conversation. You'll probably get more out of it than I did at the beginning. I mean, I go, I walk into these movies blind. So I basically have no idea what I had no idea what to expect from this movie. And I thought it was going to be a lot more of, we got to take Ant Hill again. So I was like, okay, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but it really changes halfway through. And I think that actually made it much more enjoyable for me as, as a casual. So, um, sorry if I spoiled it, if that's something that's going to catch you, but I think, um, if you listen this far, you can pull a ton of things, um, on your first watch, just, just from this episode alone. Um, so Cameron, good choice. I'm excited to continue with Kubrick month. Do you want to give the listeners an idea of what we're watching next? Yeah. So we'll be watching a classic Dr. Strange love or how I learned to stop wearing and love the bomb. Um, yeah, this is a comedy, so get ready for that. Buckle in. Um, it, right. I would say it is a funny movie. It, it, it's probably his Kubrick's funniest movie, um, but it it definitely is still a an extremely dark movie. And made in 1964, it's obviously about the Cold War um, going on contemporaneously with the Cold War. Um, and you can totally tell there's, there's a lot of, I think this lays the groundwork for a lot of what Kubrick ends up doing, uh, in the future. And it's just a, yeah, it's a brilliant movie. So excited to watch it's it. Why, with you. It's why he shot the moon landing. That's probably what this movie's about. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we try to post weekly. We appreciate you guys listening to the show. Thank you for all the support and uh, getting this far with us. We're excited for this month, Cameron. Thank you for putting to get this all together as normal um, with our regular programming. And we'll see you guys next week. Cinema Spectator is an ECFS Productions podcast that is fully funded on Patreon.com. Shout out to our producers, Darren O'Neill, for supporting the show and to the rest of you that support us at patreon.com slash ECFS Productions. If you want to learn more about the benefits you can get, check out our Patreon. The show cannot happen without you great listeners, so we thank you for all your kindness and support.